0: You're listening to a Views and Brews recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. Find out how you can join us for a live show at the Cactus at cactuscafe.org. One of our guests this evening has this fantastic quote, and he says, uh, I like the serendipitous surprises of reality. Um, It led me to this idea of what is hidden by the facts. What can people say and not say? What are the frameworks of history, of colonialism, of imperialism? that we still carry around with us in our narratives of how we understand the Middle East and the United States in relationship to the Middle East. So this evening I would like to talk a lot about those relationships and the media and the frameworks that we are using as journalists and people who are creating media to talk about the Middle East. So to get a, a better picture of this discussion, we have tonight... Uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, author of *The Looming Towers*, also author of *Going Clear*, fantastic book about Scientology. Staff writer from *For the New Yorker*. Screenwriter, playwright, actor, writer, and uh, harmonica. Play, and you don't play the harmonica, no, but you play something. You keyboard, play? keyboard in hoodoo. Uh, Lawrence Wright, thank you for coming and welcome. <laughs> And Lawrence has invited uh, to the stage, and we are so grateful for your invitation, um, columnist for The Washington Post. He is a Saudi Arabian journalist. He's written for quite a while. He has been a, an editor I- in Saudi Arabia, and now here he's writing as a columnist for The Washington Post. Jamal Khashoggi, thank you so much for coming this evening. <laughs> Let's, let's begin just by kind of framing the discussion. What are we talking about when we're talking about the Middle East? What are the boundaries? What are the conversations that are happening? What, is, what does it look like? Jamal, I'll, I'll start with you.
1: Hello, uh, Thank you for having me here. It's a great honor. The Middle East, it is the cradle of, the cradle of civilization. But the modern Middle East was created a 100 years ago there was an, an empire called the Ottoman Empire. It failed by World war, war uh, by 1918 after the First War, and then the Middle East countries appeared on the map. There was al- there were there was always an Iraq, a Syria, an Egypt, a Palestine. The colonial powers helped in drawing the map, despite. Those borders are right or wrong. I don't think borders are always disputed. Uh, those countries eventually were created in the, in, in, in the image of the colonial powers, semi-democratic. But then they fell into the hand of militarily leaders. They become dictators, thuggish type dictators. They mismanaged the countries, whether we are talking about Iraq, Syria, you heard names like Saddam Hussein, like Bashar al-Assad, his father Hafez al-Assad. They did mismanage those countries badly. Uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. They failed economically, education began to fail. Uh, they were defeated uh, in the hand of uh, the small country called Israel, so that led to more uh, uh, defeats and anger uh, within the society, uh, but the failing in the economy uh, led to the Arab Spring of 2011. Arab Spring is the most important, significant thing we should be concerned with when we talk about the Middle East today. Uh, Because at that junction in history, the Arabs wanted to move into into democracy. The tyrants, the dictators, refused, that led into a civil war. So what we are having today is civil wars in most of the Middle East, and it is not about sectarianism, even though there are sectarianism, or not about tribalism or regionalism, even though there are tribalism and regionalism, but it is about our failure, we the Arabs, the Muslim, to have the mechanism of democracy that you Americans have developed and enjoy. Uh, Because of that lack of mechanism, Arabs are killing each other today. So the biggest problem today in the Middle East that every world leader should address, and we Arabs should address too, is democracy, the lack of democracy. So we need to formulate some form of power sharing so those killings that are happening in the Middle East will stop. It will not lead to creation of a, a proper government, but at least it should lead to cease of hostility. So we, the people in the Middle East, can sit peacefully across uh, a table and uh, plan our future. Today, this is not happening. And I think we need help. We need help from outside power, because there are no regional power that is helping to put an end to the hostility and restructure the Middle East into a peaceful future. Thank you.
0: Um, So let's... let's I definitely want to get there and talk about this and actually you know how the role of outside powers in the Middle East and what that relationship to outside power has looked like as far as creating the Middle East and what the, what the relationships could look like today in terms of democracy and creating democracy or helping to shape democracy. Um, but Larry, I want, to, I, I want to get an understanding of how you first um, met the Middle East as it were. Uh, You started working in Cairo as a young journalist. Talk about your idea or imagination of what the Middle East was then and how you've come to know it since.
2: Well, I wasn't really a journalist then. I was a conscientious objector during Vietnam. And I had to do two years of alternative service in the interest of the American government in some way. It had to be 50 miles from home and had to pay very little. And... um, so I, uh, I, thought, and I it, the Vietnam War was a horrible period in our history, and uh, I just wanted to get as far out of the country as I could, so I went to the United Nations thinking they would give me a job far, far away and pay me very little. And um, they said, no, we don't do that, but here's a, here's a list of American institutions abroad. And one of them, the American University in Cairo, had a, an office across the street, 866 UN Plaza. And I walked across the street. I didn't know we didn't have any diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, that there were like only 200 Americans in the whole country trying to. And you know, the head of the, of the American University was a CIA agent. A lot of things would be revealed to me. Uh, I'm not even quite sure I knew what language they spoke in Egypt. Uh, and the war in 1967 was not one that I was. But my mind was on, so I walked across the street, and they, you know, thirty minutes into my interview, they looked a little surprised when I walked in. They said, "Can can you leave tonight?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I can't leave tonight. My girlfriend, you know, now my wife, uh, back in Boston. I haven't told my parents what I'm doing. I can't leave tonight. Can you go tomorrow? Yeah, I can go tomorrow." <laughs> so I. Went back to Boston, I told Roberta, um, you know, I'm going to Cairo. (laughs) I don't know where that leaves us. And and I called my parents from JFK. I flew to Cairo and uh, got there at midnight and taught my first class at 9 in the morning. Uh, They speak Arabic in in, uh, (laughs) Egypt. So um, one of the things I learned. But That was my introduction to a country that I came to really love. And I spent two years there. Uh, I adored my students. I, I, I was enchanted by the whole experience. Roberta came uh, the next semester and we were married. So we, we had a wonderful uh, beginning of our married life there. And um, it was heartbreaking to me after 9-11 to find that a culture that I cherished so much was at war with the culture that I'm a part of. And I don't mean the whole country of Egypt or the whole Arab world, but you know it was it was uh, wrenching and uh, so I went back after nine eleven and um, it was hard to get into saudi arabia uh, I, I they wouldn't let me in uh, after nine eleven and um, I' spent time in Egypt writing about Ayman el Zawafri and so on. but um, finally, in two thousand three, I realized they weren't going to. Let me in as a journalist, so I took a job. Uh, I became the mentor to these young reporters in Jeddah at the Saudi Gazette. Uh, and, um, and Jamal worked for the comp- competition, the Arab news, a far better newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and one day, um, you know, I, I went over, I, I heard he was the man to talk to. And um, one day I went over to have lunch with Jamal and we became friends. And he, he educated me as much as anyone about uh, what he especially talked about the schizophrenia of, of Saudi Arabia, that it says it's one thing, but in reality is something else. And that was very illuminating to me.
0: And so, you know, what was that first relationship like? You know, what did you guys... You, you said you spoke about the schizophrenia... But you'd been writing about the Middle East for quite some time before uh, visiting Saudi Arabia. So maybe take us through that first meeting a little bit and the first discussion about where you were coming from, the path to your knowledge about the Middle East, and Jamal, where you were coming from and the path to your relationship to journalism at the time, and this idea of speaking with an American journalist, trying to talk about the different ways that you were going about your profession and what that meant to you
1: example of that schizophrenia Larry is talking about because I was fired from my job as an editor of al water newspaper twice because I was calling exactly for the same reform that the young crown prince who is leading Saudi Arabia today is implementing and here I am exiled while he is implementing the reforms I called for At that time, when I met Lawrence, the issues that we were uh, pushing in the Saudi papers, and I was pushing more uh, uh, boldly than others that led me to losing my job in 53 days, issues such as radicalism, such as women driving, uh, uh, intolerance in the school textbooks, uh, women's empowerment uh male guardianship on, uh, on 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 women all those issues are being today removed uh because this courageous young uh, uh crown prince uh, has ordered them out and uh, uh, resolved all those issues even though not totally for example he said uh he vowed that we the saudis would retain to moderate Islam, and what is moderate Islam? Uh, he said we will return to, uh, prior to 1979. What was there before 1979? This is where I had a clash with the system because I wanted to, I think we needed to have a proper discourse about the future of Saudi Arabia. And he is so much intolerant that he see himself as the reformist, and uh, that he doesn't want to listen from anybody else, and uh, he want to push forward with his reform without any discussions about uh, political freedom, about democracy, about uh, sharing power, uh, so and I felt like I had always a narrow space, but that narrow space become narrower, so in June last year, I decided to leave my country to be safe uh, and just monitor from um, uh, from America, uh, the situation there, and I was right. Uh, a few weeks later, many of my friends were arrested. So I wrote uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post, which kind of uh, broke, divorced me from the government, divorced me from. Uh, even though I, th- I, th- I think it was a very uh, objective, mild uh, op-ed, but the reaction from my government, and uh, they, they treated me as if I shot the king and I ran away. They just, so much intolerance to, uh, to, 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 to an opinion. Uh, so I just uh, decided to stay here and uh, continue writing. and But I have mixed feelings. Uh, I, I like uh, the, some of the reform he's doing, but in the same time, I wish he will address the issue of political reforms, because now he removed the issues which we, uh, when I met Lawrence, uh, we were busy with, uh, such as women driving and radicalism, but now he has to address the true issues of economics, jobs, the issues you face here in Texas and everywhere else. And I'm sure that what will make a difference in Saudi Arabia, and that's why he is uh, intolerant uh, ab- about uh, he. He has a vision for the country. He has a vision how to spend the billion of dollars uh, we have, but he wants to do that alone. And they just basically think this is not right. Not right.
2: Can I just jump in one thing? I, I, we shouldn't pass too quickly over some of these reforms being very important to the future of that country. And, I, um, and the issue of women driving, for instance, is, is I, I think, a huge thing in Saudi Arabia, and I don't know if the Saudis have begun to understand how big a deal it's going to be to have women have the freedom to to get out on their own. And uh, when I was mentoring these young reporters at the uh, inferior paper, um, (laughs) we had um, male reporters, and then the the females were... Unlike the Arab News, where the female reporters were actually a part of the newsroom, at the Gazette, they were in an office under the stairs. And uh, I said I, had, if I, couldn't, I couldn't mentor them if I couldn't see them. And, uh, of course, seeing them is a, is a relative matter because they're totally cloaked. You know, and, um, but at the end of the time that I was there, I gave all my female reporters longhorn keychains <laughs> for the day that they would finally get to drive and that day is coming in a couple of weeks so I'm very happy that 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 will happen.
0: And, you know I'm I'm so glad that you that you intervened like that because the the next question I wanted to ask about was this way in which these ideas of communicating freedom and what freedom looks like versus what it actually is in the Middle East, Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you both as journalists navigate that space. The reason being, I remember being in graduate school and I took a course with Dana Cloud, who's now at Syracuse, and she showed us a cover of Time magazine. And on it, it said, freedom comes to Afghanistan. And it had pictures of women shopping for different types of material in a store. Whereas the, the, the idea was, here we've the U.S. has brought freedom to Afghanistan. Now the women have a choice, a consumer choice, to choose the color of fabric for their um, outfits. And, and these, these notions kind of play into a way in the West where we think consumer freedom is actual freedom. But they don't really speak to what is considered, what it is, and what it means to be free and have freedom of choice in the Middle East. So I want to talk a little bit about what actual freedom looks like and how we discuss those ideas and narratives of freedom here in the United States through your work.
2: Well, I guess I'll start. I have spend a lot of time in countries where there's very little freedom. And I'm always so grateful that I can get on the airplane and and travel out of there. And, you know, leaving behind people who um, whose lives are in many respects thwarted. So many young people who will never be able to fulfill the dreams that they might have because their opportunities are limited or they're, they're you know, they're, they're circumscribed by class or caste or uh, or race. And uh, in the absence of freedom, people can't be who they are. And they can't think um, freely and they can't express themselves. It. it it galls me when you have somebody like our governor. Just this—I'm I'm not political in this sense—but when he says leaving Austin, you get the smell of freedom, and it's <laughs> as if plastic bag bands and tree, the ordinances constitute freedom. Somebody that hasn't smell been of petroleum,
0: baby. That,
2: somebody has not spent enough time outside of this precious country to understand what freedom really is. And freedom has freedom is, is is a is not just going somewhere or buying something or being able to vote. Those are all expressions of freedom. But you know, civic life like this would not happen in Saudi Arabia. The, the women wouldn't be here, for one thing, but, you know, being able to freely express your thoughts uh, and have people disagree with you uh, and have a conversation about it, that's freedom. And, you know, it's, it's been a... I guess the great lesson I've taken from my experience as a journalist is that freedom is so important. And so precious, and we tend to value it so low, so cheaply in this country now. Um, I think everybody should have a little bit of a lesson by spending some time in the Middle East and seeing the alternative.
1: Freedom in the Arab world, and particularly in my country, it is a very heavy world and, 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 and uh, there is no disagreement. What, what do you mean exactly by freedom? If I say freedom, some, I can imagine a Saudi Arabian who said to me, what exactly do you mean by freedom? What do you want exactly? Uh, let's think of this term, which uh, if you Google it, you might find it in Saudi Arabia, whiskey liberal. Uh, whiskey liberal. Yeah, whiskey liberals. Who are the whiskey liberals? Liberal. The whiskey liberals are a bunch of Saudis who think freedom is being allowed to have whiskey. But in the same time, and, 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 and this, uh, even though uh, uh, drinking is prohibited in our religion and we are not supposed to have drinks, but people do drinks in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. So they see the freedom in the social matters, the freedom to have entertainment, the freedom to have uh, whiskey, the freedom uh, to have cinemas. And that what the Crown Prince is addressing today. Okay, it is good. Except for the whiskey, I'm sure Saudi Arabia would never, be, would never allow uh, alcohol. But is that truly f- freedom, having cinemas? I see that as normalization. Women driving will have a huge impact, even economically. It will empower women in Saudi Arabia. But is that freedom, or is that a woman getting her rights? Because it is her rights to drive, to drive that was taken away. I think the true freedom is the freedom to choose a leader. That is the true freedom, the freedom to choose my destiny. And that's what we are lacking. And unfortunately, many in the Arab world, in republics and in kingdoms, they think the people of the Arab world are not ready yet for that prerogative, for that uh, luxury of choosing their own leader. And that's why we have those civil wars. So if I want to push for, the, uh, in the Arab world, for the true, uh, most important meaning of freedom, it is the freedom to choose politically, and that's what we are lacking until today.
0: And there's there's also this, um, this idea that freedom is the freedom to think otherwise, the freedom to have other views. Um, I interviewed last week Nawar Babal from Syria, he's a Syrian theater director and actor, and he... He would criticize the government by putting on a Brecht play and, like, making references to the government. It was always kind of this clouded thing. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to, with this passion for freedom and dialogue, I mean, f- to elect a leader, and a critical element of that is to have a free press. So where do you see the role of the media? Why did you become a journalist? And what is the role of the media in Saudi Arabia? And I guess, you know, what is the importance of being a journalist today? Like, for both of you, I, the question is, what is the role of journalism?
1: Okay, there is hardly a role for journalism, or a proper role for journalism today, in Saudi Arabia or in, or in, or in Egypt, for example. But if we differentiate the Arab countries into free countries and non-free then we will see the bright journalism in the free countries. Even in Egypt, when they had, uh, after the revolution of 2011, uh, if somebody wants to do a PhD about proper journalism in the Arab world, he should choose that period of time, uh, between 2011 to 2013. The Egyptian journalism flourished, uh, become enjoyable. Uh, You will find the stories interesting to read. You will not have that today. There is a role of journalism. I, I remember meeting with the, the crown prince last uh, in, in 2015 or early 16, and they said to him, you must allow uh, the, the, the media to play a role in, 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 in promoting and check and balance of your reform. And he said uh, nicely and proudly that of course the media must play a role. But really the media today is very much controlled by the government. Throughout my career in Saudi Arabia, there was always a big brother looking over my shoulder and guiding me what to write. But, but, I, but we always had a space. Today, my colleagues don't have a space. They either support totally the government and the views of the government, or stay silent, or, st- or, 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 or get out of the room. And many have decided to get out of the room uh, in their seclusions, in their uh, back home, a few left the country, but they are being quiet. And there is one like me who left the country, and I'm talking about the situation. Uh, but if, but compared to the time when we met, uh, it is it is it is it is very sad. I, I was I never thought I, I I I imagine that the future will 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 will, will have for us better uh, journalism, more freer journalism, and it's a big disappointment that uh, while everything is going in the right direction, journalism is, is going backward in Saudi Arabia. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate for, for me and for the country.
2: We might add too that the newspapers are all owned by princes, and, um, and so are the satellite channels, and so all the major communication is held by the royal family, which is the government. You know the government. You know the the royal family essentially owns the country, and um, it's uh, it it not, doesn't just control it. It you know it owns all the outlets, and so it's very difficult to get an independent voice. Um, it used to be that Egypt had more of a press uh, that was open and free, but uh, it's become even more restricted under Sisi. Um, And there aren't any examples in the Arab world of uh, free voices like that.
0: But I heard an interview with a Turkish journalist who was, um, her life was being threatened because of what she had written. And she said something which stuck to me more than her name did, obviously, because I can't remember her name. But she said, I'm sick of the facts. They exhaust me. I just want to write about truth. So she started to write novels. And I wonder if there's an element of, if there's space to talk about truth um, in media, you know, as, a, as kind of a general media plays, um, poetry, novels, that you find the journalism is just too restrictive and you can't, you can't quite talk about the truth. And I know, Larry, you've worked in many different mediums. Um, is that, would that be true for you, also?
2: Well, I just want to say that the uh, facts uh, are exactly what are not allowed in the press in, uh, in much of the Arab world. Uh, opinions are fine, uh, but you can't talk about, in Saudi Arabia, the royal family or religion or you know, any kind of scandal inside the government. Uh, so the, those facts are hidden but you can you can mouth off, and uh, it's so to me, the blogosphere is a lot like the arab press it's sort of fact free it's opinionated you know it it runs on you know thin fuel and but if you're reading the Arab press, you're subject to opinions, but the the actual facts, the information is is very closely shielded, and yeah I think it's true that. In repressive countries, there is a, a tendency to conduct art symbolically. And I remember when I was in Syria in um, 2006. Uh, the Middle East is a talkative place. I think you would agree. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I love about it as a reporter: is that you know people love to talk, and um, and yet Syria was so quiet. And I, I went to my editor, at the New Yorker, and I said, I want to write about Syria because it's so quiet. That's <laughs> not a story. So um, I thought, well, how can I find out about Syria? Uh, and I realized that people know about America through our movies. And so I thought, I'll go to Syria, and I'll watch their movies, and I'll interview their filmmakers. And um, it was revelatory. Uh, They were, in Syria, they had a very unusual arrangement where the government would allow filmmakers, some of them wonderfully talented, like Osama Mohammed is a great filmmaker. He was actually a government employee and he was allowed to make these films that were, in some respects, quite radical and also very beautiful. They remind me of Terry Malick's work in some ways. But they wouldn't be shown in Syria they would go out into international film competitions and they would win awards and the Syrian government would be thrilled it would be very critical of the government but it was a classic paradox of you know he he in order to have the freedom to express himself he had to work for the government cuz that's the only way you could get a movie made there used to be dozens of cinemas in Syria and when i were there was there there were only 3 because they didn't want people to gather, and um, and I went to the movie in Syria and I saw uh, uh, Big Mama's House Two. <laughs> you <know, a> radical, <laughs> a radical piece of work for sure. But um, the uh, but there was an underground of filmmakers. Who were constantly trying to find ways to express their frustration and the in the in the Syrian government uh, was the only outlet for them and so you know i it was heartbreaking in a way because they were writing they were making movies for nobody
0: um. I want to circle back before... I hate that term, circle back, but I just said it. Oh, my goodness. Um, and We're going to open it up to questions in just a little bit. But, Jamal, with your first answer, you mentioned something about the role of other governments in helping to shape democracy in the Middle East. And I want to talk about that a little bit because you, before the show, you were talking a little bit about your criticism of Trump and that you were silenced for that by the saudi arabian government so talk about the relationship with outside um political groups you know outside entities the united states in particular and and what those conversations are like in the need for them to come over because that's also this idea like that the middle east that's a very imperialist idea um that the Middle East needs the West in some way. Um, But talk about what you meant by that and a little bit about your relationship with those conversations.
1: When Eastern Europe uh, broke the iron uh, curtains and uh, moved into democracy, there was Western Europe embracing it. They they helped them out. And that's why the transformation was much uh, successful and peaceful in Eastern Europe. Maybe the Americans helped in Latin America. Uh, But the Arab world had no friend. When uh, the wave of democracy hit the shores of the Arab world, Obama should have played that role, considering uh, his famous speech, he advocated in Cairo University, but he did not. Uh, He lit the counter-revolutions in the Arab world, which was my country, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates play against uh, the, the Arab Spring countries and uh, tend uh, to try to, to bring back the, the, the failed Arab systems. That's why I think there is a role for international community to play, because it is very unfair for the Arabs not to enjoy the benefit of democracy that most of the world enjoys. But with Obama gone, Mr. Trump is not interested. He's more into authoritarians and uh, supporting uh, uh, authoritarian rules. But I think we, the Arabs, should not give up. Even though there is a collection of Arab uh, spring exiled, that is the term I I, I call myself and I call many uh, colleagues of mine who are coming from Syria, from Egypt, Arab Spring being exiled. We are scattered in America, in Europe. We need to get together and remind the world of that. We need to push for democracy. Uh, we need to stop the wars. I myself thinking of starting a movement with, uh, many, with some of those friends, just to stop the wars we are going through. If you just check on YouTube, because those pictures are not being uh, broadcast on CNN, how the Russians are bombing Eastern Ghouta, you would, you, might, you would not believe that this is happening in in, in uh, to, today, in uh, at this time. Kids are, are 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 being killed, and they don't even have coffins for them. They begin to put them on 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 on, 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 on uh, UNCHR uh, plastic bags. It's, it's 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 very sad. So that's what I want to do. That's what I think. Uh, many of my, my, my colleagues should do. And we, we just need to stop this cycle of violence that is engulfing my, uh, my part of the world. It, 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 it's just very sad. We have to stop it.
2: I guess I have a little bit different view. I, I, you were talking about Obama and I, in 2008 during the uh, primaries I was in Egypt and I made a talk at Cairo University, the same place where Obama Spoke and also at my old alma mater, uh, American University in Cairo, and one of those places, um, I, I was talking to the students, and uh, and I could see that you know the from the questions that they were very interested in the American election uh, because they didn't have the opportunity in their own country. They you know they they were. By vicariously uh, fascinated by what was going on in the United States and so um, I asked, well how how many of you, if you could vote in the primaries, would vote for uh, Hillary Clinton and all these girls in hijab, raise their hand, you know, and how many for Barack Obama, you know, Obama, most everybody else, and how many for John McCain, one guy from the embassy <laughs> 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 so, uh, and so and and the uh what was so striking to me in talking to those kids at that time, how they longed for the democracy that you speak of, and um, how how much they wanted to express uh, their have some control over their future. well sh- not long after that. I'm sure a lot of those same kids were out in Tahrir Square uh, leading the the Arab Spring. And um, I I draw a connection between the election of Barack Obama and the Arab Spring because I think what America had to offer uh, that was so powerful is the example of social change without violence the fact that a country could turn over itself and, and people could, exp- just as so many of you voted today, um, you know, those, uh, that is a resonant example for so many people in countries where that's not really true. And I don't think that America or the West can change the Middle East Ex- militarily or through aid or, I think we have to continually refresh our own example and be a light to the world, if you can forgive me for using a trite phrase. But it, 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 I don't know how to stop, I don't know how to stop the violence in the Middle East without adding to it. With uh, the, American, the American military is a big foot. And when it steps down, a lot of people get hurt. And we don't understand the cultures. Really, the thing that's, that's so remarkable to me is how ignorant we are uh, about places that we are actually waging war uh, for such a long period of time. We still haven't learned very much. The, uh, my experience of teaching at the American University is that this was one institution that did a lot of good, and it was—it's been there year after year, whether we're having diplomatic relations or not. You know, it's year, generation after generation. It's training young Egyptians in in the concept of liberal democracy, and it's also helping people like me, uh, naive young guys from Dallas, you know, being plunged into uh, another culture and seeing who they are and recognizing their humanity I think those kinds of things planting you know spreading the American ideal the western ideal of democracy creating opportunities for education bringing more you know you studied in southern Illinois or was it Indiana Indiana State State. you know bringing young people over to this country and giving them a taste of what it's like to think freely then you have the possibility for the kind of uprising of Democrats that I think that you want to see?
1: Bill Clinton stopped the war in Bosnia, and and it worked. If it wasn't for him, the war could have continued uh, two or three more years, maybe until today, we don't know. Uh, But uh, right now, we see a war in Syria, and we don't see a serious determination by the West, by either the Americans or the Europeans to stop it. Of course, the Russians exploited that, and they almost took over Syria. Uh, In in Egypt, there are about 40,000 people in jail, and that is totally off the radar. I'm not calling for Americans sending their troops into Egypt or, 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 or to Syria, but at least to have Those issues of human rights abuses, of uh, uh, allowing a leader to bomb his own people on the radar, on on, on the top of their agenda, I'm sure the American government, the European government, they can do something about it. What it is that is uh, for the politician to decide, but to turn a blind eye onto those atrocities that are happening in the Arab world, it, it, it is unfair. It is, uh, but it it is unfair for us. We did not see that happening in Rwanda. We, that did not happen in Bosnia. So to ignore the misery of the Arabs, it's just basically unfair.
0: And I think you know we did a show on um, ISIS in the Middle East, and I think your point is is crucial in that. If we don't know what's going on and if if the narratives of who's controlling what, for whom, for what purposes, how many people are actually dying um, is not really getting through to the media in an accurate way and we don't know the facts, then as a people living in a democratic society, we can't really make any type of um, agenda moving vote to do anything about it. About it, so ISIS is a perfect example where there was a lot of discussion about um, fighting ISIS in in the Middle East and in Syria. And now I just looked at a map yesterday of Syria, and it was like ISIS controlled like this much, and it was uh, the Assad regime and the Russians and uh, the Kurdish area and. Um, and I just think about how those discussions were framed and what information we were actually getting and how the information we were getting reflected the types of judgments that we made about what was going on in the area. And so those, that, that communication cycle was really crucial in
1: that. And b- briefly, ISIS is a result of the neglect to the crisis in Syria. So there was ISIS and the refugees who are changing the politics of Europe today and the result of the elections in Europe today it is again because of the, of the neglect. If the world gave attention to the Middle East crisis at an early stage, there wouldn't be an ISIS and there would not be a ref, a refugees and the, and the far right will not be winning in Europe.
2: But there's also the, you know, the idealism of the neocons uh, during George W. Bush's reign, which was let's just knock over an Arab country, uh, Iraq say, and get rid of a, a, a dictator, and, it, and they will it will implant a democracy in one of the important countries, and it will spread all over the place by the power of example. And that's not what happened. Uh, it, you know, I, I take your point, Jamal. I think that the West should take notice and should help uh, nurture democracy and do whatever it can. But it cannot do it. I do not think militarily and it and it also I don't know that we're sophisticated enough uh as a country to uh to address these problems in a in a in a in a pinpoint way. I mean my feeling is we have to do it in you know broad strokes by trying to spread education and that sort of thing. It it's very difficult to imagine how America could fix uh, Syria after, and I, I, you know, I had a, when I was in Syria, uh, I had a very well-known Syrian novelist tell me, I wish you would invade Syria. Um, Really? (laughs) After you see what is going on in Iraq, you would like for that to happen to your country? He said, we deserve it. And, uh, and we need it. But as an American, I was a, a little upset with him because I don't think it's my responsibility as an American to fix Syria. But I do see the suffering of the Syrian people, and I don't know how to go about uh, repairing it. Um, it's, it's the worst civil war in my lifetime. And uh, and there there are very few clear alternatives. If you were to, if Saudi Arabia were to go into some kind of um, civil war, um, then uh, you know America would be faced with a, a dilemma because you know we have uh, an obligation to. To help the world economy, which could be strangled in some respects by the the loss of Saudi oil, so we would be faced with that responsibility, and then also the responsibility to try to, to usher in a new kind of ruling class of people that would be more attentive to the needs of the of the people and the and the modern economy. Uh, and those things would not be easy to coordinate so you know we and we just don't know how to do it I don't think um, but I do agree that Jam- with Jamal that we have to take notice of these problems and try to you know r- bring as much peace as we can to the to the region but it's uh, I think you place too much confidence in America in, in that respect
0: and I think you know we're going to open things up for questions now um, and there's but there's one more thing before we do which is of course we also see you mentioned the economy the role of the economy in overthrowing democracy and and where one country who's taking a lot of the syrian refugees right now greece you know their their government overthrew the public when they decided when they didn't want to take the bailout um, and now they're really suffering because of that. So, you know, democracy also is intertwined with these economic forces, which, um, which is all part of the conversation that we can't ignore. Um,
2: I just wanted to say one thing about that. The, you know, the refugees are, are affecting the whole world. And um, if you think about the Palestinian uh, exodus... The entire population of that was seven hundred and fifty thousand people, and think about how much misery they've endured, and how much uh, misery has been inflicted on other countries because of the terrorism that arose from their despair and their disenfranchisement. The Syrian's the Syrian refugee population is now over five million people, and. Uh, if you were a six-year-old child in 2011 or 2013, you've already missed your entire primary school education, and 60% of the refugees are children. So what's going to happen with them? I th- and, and Jamal is right to point to Western Europe. Governments are being capsized, uh, you know, and and. That's in Europe where we pay more attention. But, you know, there's a million refugees in Jordan. There are two million uh, in Turkey. Uh, One out of five people in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee. These are our nominal allies in the region, and they could easily be taken down by the kind of disruptions that this surplus of, of refugees is inflicting on them.
0: Is Saudi Arabia taking refugees from the Syrian crisis?
2: No, uh,
1: but we have a good population of Syrians, about half a million Syrians uh, who, many of the Syrians uh, brought in their families, uh, but Saudi Arabia, it is not a border country. So most of the refugees ended up in border country to Syria, that's Jordan, Lebanon, and uh, and, and Turkey. But uh, the number of Syrians after the war almost doubled in Saudi Arabia due to uh, Bring in the family of a Syrian who's already living in Saudi Arabia.
0: Okay, so let's for real open things up for questions now. Um, there's tons of hands, so Amy's coming around with the mic and just, uh, you know. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm curious about the. Uh, tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and how much um, either of you or both of you think that that fuels the conflict in the Greater Middle East, uh, b- both in Syria and then in Yemen as well, and then um, because the, the proxy forces that they both have uh, in seem to be a root cause of of a lot of the violence. So. If either or both of you could just speak to your thoughts on that,
1: It does fuel the conflicts, but it is not the reason for the conflicts. Even if the Iranians and the Saudis have a peace agreement and they uh, decided to uh, stop middling in the affairs in, the, in those countries that they are having what is called proxy wars, that will not end the war in Syria. The, the, the war in Syria has its own reasons. But of course, because of the competition between both countries, it did fuel, uh, as I said earlier, the, the, the nature of the conflicts in the Middle East are not sectarians. But sectarianism is there because of Iranian expansionism to, to spread uh, their influence throughout the, the, the region that led to sectarianism. So it's basically my, my brief answer it, 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 doesn't fuel the, it does not fuel the conflict, but it is not the reason of the, confl- uh, the conflict.
2: Yeah, I agree with that, and I'll add that I think that these proxy wars are a distraction uh, from the problems that the governments themselves have, the tyrannies that are at war with each other are, are diverting the attention of their population by waging wars elsewhere.
0: Another question?
3: Hi, thank you. I have a question for
0: Mr. Khazashki, more on why was this the time that you picked to leave? You've been a journalist for 30 years in Saudi Arabia, and right as it's starting to, say, liberalize, you're now feeling more pressure. And then additionally, if you could speak to your attempt to balance your... Um, your like of Mohammed bin Salman and is also the challenge of he's now consolidating power and the more he consolidates the less he wants to leave. So how do you balance that?
1: Right. uh, Before I left, I was banned from writing. uh, Banned from tweeting by an order from Mohammed bin Salman. I felt very much insulted. I'm a well-known writer in Saudi Arabia and suddenly I just I had a a weekly column in the leading paper of al-Hayat, and here I cannot write, I cannot even tweet. I feel insulted throughout those six months. Then, uh, I felt the narrow space I had is getting narrower. I began to hear of friends and colleagues who were called by the state security to sign a pledge that they must support the government and they must uh, withdraw, delete certain tweets from their uh, Twitter accounts. Then we had a confrontation with Qatar and uh, pro-government elements uh, raised the slogan, neutrality is, tre- is-, is treason. I felt there is no room for me here. So in the middle of June, It was the month of Ramadan, In Ramadan is like Christmas, uh, 60 days of Christmas. Uh, (laughs) No, no, 30 30, 30 days of Christmas. So I just decided to leave. And I came to... uh, My daughters were uh, in California at that time, and I wanted to help them move back to Dubai. So while I was there, the arrest began to happen. So my intuition was right when I had to make a major decision when the arrest of many of my friends happened. Now I'm free in America, in my own safety, in my own home. Should I just turn a blind eye and choose uh, to be uh, safe and ignore what is going on in my country? I got a phone call from the Washington Post asking me if I want to comment and write about the arrest. And just in immediately, immediately, I said yes, I would do that, and that was like uh, uh, I heard this uh, uh, a saying uh, to, uh, uh, to cross the ro- 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 Rubicon. The Rubicon. So I c- by writing that op-ed, I crossed the Rubicon, and I uh, and and I had relations severed with my government. Uh, so that. That's why I just I just felt that there was no space for me there Uh, He we are moving from religious extremism To you must support me extremism uh, Support my reform extremism and I think it is back to my answer about freedom freedom It is not about social reform freedom is about my choice uh, My freedom to choose and he doesn't want to give me the freedom to choose.
0: Another question?
3: Thank you. So I have a question. I'm Hungarian. And I don't know if you understand what's going on in Hungary in uh, Central Europe for all practical purposes. They're the only country that is closing the border to the Syrians and anybody else, all the immigrants. Now, my question isn't based on that, but it gives you a background why I'm asking it. Any time... You look at an individual, an individual affects people, and they have an impression. So the public impression of what's going on with the refugees reflects back on the country. It reflects back on the government. It's very difficult to go ahead and put that line between the two. And I think that my question to you, both of you, is what, happen, what is happening in Europe, how much is that, working against solving the problem in Syria and the Middle East?
2: Well, uh, Syria has suffered a tremendous loss of, you know, its most valuable people. Uh, The diaspora of the Syrians is profound. And if and when this war comes to a conclusion, will they go home Uh, it's it's a profound question. Will there be a home for them to go back to? Will the world help uh, rebuild Syria? Uh, You know, these are all questions. My feeling is that it's very important to try to attract the Syrian diaspora to return. Uh, In the absence of that, uh, there'll be uh, a continued period of chaos, and chaos and terrorism go hand in hand. We've all learned that. Uh, if they, they have to empty out the refugee camps uh, because that's another place where uh, there are few opportunities, a lot of despair, and right now the refugee camps are full of ISIS ter- uh, recruiters. So I think it's very important to try to have an international effort to restore Syria uh, to some kind of balanced state. And that will require bringing Syrians home who know how to teach, how to build cities, you know, how, to, uh, how to make architecture. I mean, all the stuff that goes together to make a civilization, Syria has lost right now. And uh, without those Syrians going back, I think we're going to be in real trouble. And Western Europe in particular, I think, uh, is at great risk right now.
4: Hi. Um, So my question is for anyone who wants to answer it. Um, So you guys spoke of Western intervention in the Middle East to help fix the problem of authoritarian and oppressive regimes. Um, And I would give the example of Iraq. Before we invaded, um, the rhetoric surrounding that invasion was that we're going to go in and especially liberate women and... um, freedom was attached to to women's bodies. Um, And now women in Iraq have it much much worse than they did before the war. Um, And so time after time, Western intervention in the Arab world seems to destabilize and make the humanitarian situation worse. So what makes you think that the United States and the West have any interest in stabilizing Arab countries? And in my opinion, I would argue that it's not in the United States' interest to stabilize the Middle East due to our relationship with Israel. And as an, as an Arab, are you skeptical of the, U, the U.S. meddling in Arab affairs, given, given our history?
1: If you allow me. Uh, we must differentiate between Iraq when, when it was invaded by American troops and when the revolution broke out in Syria. Iraq, even though it was under a tyrant, Saddam Hussein, but it was stable. But the revolution in Syria, it's erupted like a fire that needed uh, attention uh, from the, 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 inter, the international community. So is with, with, with the Libya. So, it, so there was, the, the international community should not have ignored what happened in Syria because there was a revolution there. Maybe at the beginning of the revolution, the, the West could have had an excuse not to intervene. But by 2012, somebody ha- should have done something. But they did not do it. And uh, the, the problem become bigger and bigger. So, so to use the example of Iraq, that George Bush intervention made the situation worse in Iraq, I think it is not right to apply it on Syria and in Libya because the Americans and the Europeans and the Saudis, they were not in control to stop the events in, uh, in in Syria the syrian people had all the reasons to revolt and they did not they were hoping for someone to come and help them but they were not willing to stop since nobody came to help them out uh, are the americans really interested in bringing uh, it seems to me that the current american administration is in is in total withdrawal it has uh, all kind of local problems uh, the the investigations and you don't have uh, the the Brzezinski, the 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 the, the long-term planning that uh, that was there in America in the seventies and the eighties. So I just do not anticipate much to come out of uh, of the administration towards Syria. And and one of the faults of Mohammed bin Salman, in my opinion, that he is putting too much. Uh, credit or uh, putting, uh, depending on uh, the Trump administration to solve his Middle Eastern problem. And I don't think he will get that. Not because Donald Trump does not want to do it, it's just simply because he cannot do it. There's no way that that the administration will fight the Saudi war in Syria or in Yemen. Uh, The most the, the administration will do for Saudi Arabia is just to continue uh, supporting Saudi Arabia's war in, uh, in, in Yemen, but, I, but even that is becoming difficult with the public opinion turning against uh, the, the whole war together.
0: Another question? We have time for about two more questions.
4: You know, I, th- there are two things that you said earlier that I wanted to ask you about. Um, the first is the notion that the West can do something. And I would be very interested in your thoughts about exactly what that would be. And then the second thing that I wanted to follow up on is you said, that you, you said something to the, uh, about the West maybe not believing that the Arab or the Middle East is ready for democracy. And I think there's, th- that is a relatively widely held view that democracy can't just be plopped on a prior authoritarian government, that there has to be a transition. And I wondered what your thoughts are about what a transition might be and how the West could help with that.
1: Democracy should not be introduced forcibly into a stable society. Like Saudi Arabia, for example, we don't have a crisis in Saudi Arabia. But when you go to Libya, democracy is the remedy, is the solution. It is some form of power sharing. Why the Libyans are fighting? They're fighting because they lack a mechanism to choose a leader. That's where the West should intervene. In, in a country where it has a crisis, uh, 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 like, like Libya or Syria or in Yemen. But again, I agree with you. Uh, where you have a stability, even though unjust stability, It it, it is better not to intervene. But where you have a crisis, democracy is a remedy. It is not a luxury to be introduced there. How would you get there? Because there were a long delay, the situation got more complicated. Yes, Syria is very complicated today. With the presence of of, of the Russians there, and with the withdrawal of the administration, I really don't have a proper answer right now. I know it's very complicated. But again, there has it, it, some attention, some support, will be, must be given to the uh, crisis, to the killing that is taking place today in, in, in many parts of the Arab world. But how to do? Some countries are easier than others, like for example, Libya, for example. In Libya, the West, the the Americans and the the Europeans must intervene to stop the negative intervention in Libya that is coming from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, and from uh, United Arab Emirates uh, against the democratic process in Libya. That is a, is a, a, a quick solution by applying pressure on the allies of the United States, but of course, when, if we move to, to Syria, the, 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 the West and the United States have to deal with, 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 with Putin and with the Russians, which, 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 which make it way, way more complicated. In Yemen, applying pressure on the Saudis and on the Iranians to reach an agreement, uh, to, uh, some form of power sharing agreement. So there is a possibility for intervention, but it, it, it lacked the will uh, by the administration. And again, uh, we all know the administration is uh, preoccupied with the local issues uh, of every day that we watch on the Syrian.
2: I remember um, you know, when I was in Egypt during uh, during the Iraq War, uh, there was a well-known writer named Ali Salem. Did you know Ali? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Um, he had this big, long, rubbery face, and he talked like this, you know. And uh, I asked him about, you know, uh, sort of, you know, where where does America fit in this? And he said, well, the United States is now a Middle Eastern country, and you're going to have to think very old thoughts. I don't think we've gotten to that point yet.
0: Well, I mean... And just to highlight how complex the Syria is right now, I was talking to someone the other day about Syria, and um, they said, well, that war's been going on for 20, 30 years. And I said, well, actually, the war in Syria started because of the Arab Spring, and it was a revolt of the people trying to gain some type of democratic voice. And they were like, what? Really? And I just re- I just thought... That message or the way, just the way that the whole conflict in Syria is framed is so outside of a normative understanding of the U.S. and its role in Syria or even Europe and its role or Russia's role in Syria that we think, oh, the mythology is they've just been fighting forever.
2: You know, the other thing that comes to mind about that... I. I was so inspired by uh, the Arab Spring. And, and they were inspired by Gandhi and Martin Luther King. That was, you know, who they were finding. You know, the, the American Civil Rights Movement, once again, a model for, the, you know, this movement for nonviolent social change. And there's a, there's a monument in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, to the martyrs of the Civil Rights Movement. And, you know, you know Martin Luther King and the three little girls in the Birmingham church bombing and Medgar Evers and, you know, but the whole list, all the people who died, who were martyred by the civil rights movement, 40 people. Uh, and that's what it took to change America. In the 17 days of the Tahrir explosion, 840 people were killed in Cairo and And you know then Syria people went into the streets thinking that they could be like America, and they were greeted with helicopter gunships and barrel bombs, thousands and thousands of people slaughtered no There's no counting how many people have died before it turned violent. It was a nonviolent revolution, and it might not have ever succeeded but When it became violent, it was guaranteed not to succeed. Uh, The only chance, I think, would have been for, you know, the people to continue sacrificing themselves. But who could tell them to do that? It was just too ghastly. And um, anyway, I often reflect on the fact that, you know, we we have a country that can be changed. Every country, of course, can be changed but the, the amount of sacrifice required. Uh, I don't think a lot of Americans are prepared to understand how great that can be in some of these places. I want to comment
1: uh, on, on your question about uh, the narrative that the Arab world is, is, is not ready for democracy. Yes, we, there are Arabs who say that. There are those like whiskey liberals, They will say something like that, that the Arab world is not ready for democracy. So this idea is exported also to the West, but it is very much wrong. Yes, uh, democracy requires education, but again, we need democracy not to choose the best leader. We need democracy to stop killing each other, to agree on a leader. That's how essential democracy is to the Arab world. We just need it to stop killing each other. There is a beautiful movie I advise you to watch, it is available on YouTube, it's called Little Gandhi. It's a story of how the Syrian revolution started, with a young man who will give, try to give the soldiers a bottle of water, it was uh, during the summer, and, and, and a flower, a, carnation, a white carnation. Of course, uh, he was later arrested and uh, executed by the government. But that's how the Syrian revolution started, very peaceful with an aspiration by Gandhi uh, and and wanted to be a peaceful revolution. But it was an opportunity for President Obama that he could have entered history as the advocate, as a supporter who brought change to the Middle East. But for some reason, he did not.
0: So last question, let's just take one more. Thank you both very much. Um, my name is Lana. Um, I'm an Arab. I came here from Lebanon by way of Saudi Arabia and Egypt On route. My aunt is an Arab journalist actually that did an interview interestingly with Indira Gandhi right before she was assassinated. Um,
4: I studied censorship of uh, the media before we had digital and was completely inspired by the Arab Spring, certainly didn't
0: expect it when I was in college. And you said there was that short period, so it breaks my heart actually that you're here, that your Twitter account was shut down. What hope do we have as journalists and what route do you have, if any, right now for information flow,
4: even if it's underground, with those that you want to communicate with about these issues back in the Middle East?
1: It's not a good time for journalism in the Arab world. Uh, where there are freedom or a slight amount of freedom, there's good journalism like Tunisia, Kuwait and Morocco. You can't find proper stories, objective stories. With the eruption of the Qatari crisis that uh, galvanized the, uh, the, the, the Gulf state, uh, it led to the in, in, in entrenchments of uh, uh, Qatari uh, media outlets, versus the Saudi media outlet, because we the Saudis and the Qataris, we own most of the pan-Arab media. Uh, but the, the Qatari crisis, which is, which is very unre- un- unnecessarily relevant crisis, led to the loss of objectivity by both sides. So it is a sad moment for uh, journalism throughout the Arab world, except for those few countries that enjoy uh, stability and, uh, and freedom, like Tunisia, but they are not powerful enough compared to the uh, news channel that owned by the Saudis and the Qataris who are losing objectivity because of this confrontation they have between them.
0: So, Leave us with something, um, some idea of, I, I, as, as Lana was asking that question, I was reminded of, when, in 1997, I was living in the Middle East, and I was crossing the street in Egypt, and an Egyptian journalist was talking to me, and he said, you should go into journalism being from the West, you know, being from America, you should go into journalism, you have a voice, you don't even understand the power of your voice. Um, and that really struck me. And even though I was studying archaeology at the time, I was veering toward journalism. What, what would you say to journalists coming up today about their voice? What should they be thinking about in communicating these ideas of personhood, of history, of politics, of economics, and even the idea of freedom and what that means in the work that they're doing and at this time in journalism when accuracy is revolutionary what should what is your what is your advice for journalists and media consumers today
1: to be a, a free journalist you have to work on a free ground i could sit up a news uh, outlet here in america and i'm free to do that but what about my reporter who is feeding me with the stories from Jeddah and Riyadh in Saudi Arabia? He's not free to go and dig for information. What I'm hoping for most of the news about my country, like when we had uh, the Burj on Corruption news and the arrest, the famous story in the Ritz Carlton, most of the news was reported by American journalists in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, uh, and even when uh, stories about Egypt, about democracy, about arrest, about uh, uh, Sisi Burge on uh, a candidate who, uh, who tried to, to, to run against him. Also, they were reported by the New York Times and uh, other newspaper. So, I got many friends in those newspapers, and every time, I t- I try to convince them to do an Arabic edition, not of the whole newspaper, but just to do an Arabic page for selected stories from the New York Times, selected stories from the Washington Post, that could help Arab journalism. That could give an example of a proper journalism, but unfortunately, it is costly. Uh, they are already having, uh, happy about their success to to break out the, thresh, the, th- uh, the pressure of, uh, of, of of losing revenues and distribution, so they don't want to indulge or they don't want to commit to an, an adventurous project like that. But uh, I, I would like to see an Arabic mini, a small edition of the New York Times or the Washington Post, which will serve. Uh, uh, the the cause of journalism in the Arab world.
2: I I guess I will talk uh, just briefly about the American press um, because you know we have uh, something very unusual uh, in the world and, and and I I worry that we don't value it nearly enough um, when and I, and I fault not just you know people who s- declare the press the enemy. But also the press itself, when it takes the bait, Um, it's the idea that reporting, you know, by nature, is a a matter of gathering a kind of consensus about the truth. Um, if, if If all of you are the people that know something about the story I'm writing, and I go to talk to each of you, Uh, you're going to have many different points of view, and some of them will be replicated. You might think the same thing as she does, and so we have uh, two perspectives that in maybe 15 people over here think something. I try, as a reporter, to represent the preponderance of those views, and it's the truth about what is going on in this room. Now of course people can attack it because it doesn't represent what she thinks uh and uh and and that's a task beyond the you know, beyond the journalist he can only go in and get people who are willing to talk to him get a sense of what is going on and then try to honestly present you know th- what is actually happening in this story this room represents well the idea that there is an entirely different narrative that is equal to the reporting that we've done now, uh, that is embodied in what she thinks, uh, is is a total. It turns up the whole i turns upside down the whole enterprise. One one crack in the in the in the view doesn't mean that the whole world is wrong, and I. I think the attack on journalism, it's, it's an art. It's, it's, it's not perfect. It's, it's the effort of many, many people to try to establish, sometimes at the risk of their lives, uh, what is actually going on, to bring home what they saw. And the disparagement of journalists in a country that depends on it. Depends on the free flow of information and the honest integrity of its publications, uh, and has to see it corrupted by partisan interests, and and to see even very, you know, some of our most cherished institutions deciding that yes, we are the enemy, and as a matter of fact, our subscriptions are going up, and this is great, and it is great, but uh, but to to then take the debate and become the adversary rather than the impartial arbiter of news is a tragedy because one day there will be no Trump administration but will there be no decent press after that you know that's a sacrifice I don't think we should make in this country.
0: Well, oh, this is, is of course just the beginning of many more conversations about the Middle East. Hopefully, so thank you so much, Karen, for bringing um, Lawrence Wright here and Jamal Khashoggi. Thank you so much, Larry and Jamal, for coming out this evening and sharing your work and your efforts and your ideas with us. Thank you for coming out. And, also this evening, I'd just like to thank everyone for their wonderful, thoughtful, and insightful questions. It was, they were very wonderful and important. So thank you very much for that. Hope to see you at another Views and Brews. Have a great night. Thank you.